So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media? Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. Nine out of ten doctors agree. We'll be right back. No one's going to escape the long arm of the law on Genealogy, our Roddenberry podcast. Episode 12, Prospector. Welcome to Mission Log Genealogy. I'm Earl Green. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Genealogy, we examine Gene Roddenberry's claim to fame before he created Star Trek, namely as a rising talent in 50s and 60s TV, writing episodes of westerns, cop shows, and military shows, eking out a living in the golden age of television. This week, our ride-along continues with Highway Patrol, starring Broderick Crawford, as we grab a pick and chip away at the fourth of Gene's five scripts for that show, Prospector. Did Gene strike gold this week by slipping a valuable moral lesson into his script? We'll sift through our findings shortly, but first Norman will tell you how you can reach us. Genealogy is meant to be entertaining and informative, but it's also the beginning of an ongoing conversation about the works of Gene Roddenberry. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook at missionlogpod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on future installments of Genealogy. And now, here is Earl Green with this week's Gold Rush of Trivia. Thank you, Norman. This episode of Highway Patrol aired on or around June 18, 1956, from a script dated February 7, 1956, but revised on March 6th. If this is indeed accurate, this air date, this is a banner occasion, a major milestone in Gene's history. June 18th would be 11 days after June 7th, 1956, the day Gene tendered his resignation to the Los Angeles Police Department with the following simple note. I find myself unable to support my family at present on anticipated police salary levels in a manner we consider necessary. Having spent slightly more than seven years on this job, during all of which fair treatment and enjoyable working conditions were received, this decision is made with considerable and genuine regret. Signed, E.W. Roddenberry, Sergeant of Police, Public Information. And with that, Gene's police career was over, and his writing career took over permanently. For the purposes of genealogy, this means we're about to stop hearing from Robert Wesley, after the last of Gene's Highway Patrol scripts, which is credited to Gene rather than Robert Wesley, will cover two episodes of I Led Three Lives, written by Robert Wesley, which aired before Prospector, and then Gene retires that pseudonym as he becomes a staff writer on a new Ziv series called West Point, which was produced for CBS. The Police and I know one thing, Asa. They didn't come here because you made a plain, ordinary mining strike. All right. All right. I found money. 
a tin box crammed with it. But I found it hidden on my legal registered claim. So it's mine. That's really so why can't you wait? Talk to the police. Oh no. Oh no. The Hills paid me off for 40 years looking. And I ain't no fancy talk gonna get it back for me. Where are you going to, Asa? After I pick up the rest of my claim, I'm going where they can't reach me. Gonna live in style, old woman. Dan Matthews of the California Highway Patrol takes on cases where criminals may be on the move or on the run and brings them back to face justice. This is just one of his cases on the Highway Patrol. Act 1. A rickety old coupe hauling mining tools on its makeshift flatbed roars down the road, leaving a trail of dust. The weather-beaten vehicle, driven by the grizzled prospector Asa McQueen, tells the tale of a man accustomed to wilderness hardships with his small, wiry frame clad in dust-caked denims and a floppy hat. Asa barrels down the downgrade road towards Folkestone. News of his return quickly reaches the local general store, where Charlie Webster and Jesse, the town gossip, are lambasting their so-called friend. Asa storms in, displaying a handful of $100 bills, claiming he has struck it rich after years of prospecting. Charlie and Jesse are taken aback, prompting questions about Asa's newfound fortune. As Jesse goes to spread the news, Charlie presses Asa for details. He remains elusive, revealing his intention to pay off debts and make amends for living off the charity of others. He then meets with E.L. Dunn, the local bank manager, and hands him three crisp $100 bills. Asa leaves confidently, prompting Dunn to call the highway patrol due to suspicions about Asa's wealth. At Highway Patrol headquarters, a call about a stolen dark green coupe connects Asa to the recent Acme armored car robbery. Matthews, taking Dunn's call, links Asa's bills to the robbery, leading to an investigation. Sergeant Corey notifies the FBI as Matthews wants to explore Asa's connection to the heist suspects. Back at Charlie's, Asa lavishes friends with wealth, especially his landlady Maggie, who warns Asa to be careful. Ignoring her, Asa flirts with the idea of a romantic relationship. Meanwhile, at the bank, Matthews later confirms the stolen bills with Dunn, but the bank manager finds Asa strange and suspicious, but not necessarily a crook. Matthews then directs the investigation to Maggie's boarding house, where Asa stays. Maggie, questioned by Matthews, directs him to the general store. She identifies Brownie Osborne from the suspect's photos linked to the armored car robbery. Later, when Asa returns, Maggie tells him about the police visit, but he defends his newfound wealth vehemently. Unwilling to be interrogated, he gathers his belongings to disappear, leaving Maggie with a promise that he will send for her. At Jesse's boarding house, Brownie Osborne lies in bed, suffering from Jesse's endless gossip. Jesse mentions Asa's newfound wealth, but Brownie dismisses it with a shout and slams the door. Acting somewhat uninterested, Brownie then reaches for a high-powered rifle hidden in his room. Act 2 Meanwhile, enduring more gossip than necessary while questioning Jesse about both Asa and Brownie Osborne, Matthews then returns to Maggie's to piece together Asa's financial windfall, Brownie Osborne's involvement in the Acme armored car heist, and where Asa's claim is in the countless miles of open terrain in the foothills. 
Distressed by the news, Maggie pleads for Matthews to stop Brownie, fearing that Asa might be on a collision course with danger. Amidst the urgency, Maggie reveals that Asa's claim is registered, allowing Matthews to contact the county claims office. The details of Asa's mining venture are now in motion, intertwined with the fate of the hidden loot from an armored truck robbery. Brownie follows Asa's car into the foothills, and after arming himself with his rifle, begins closing in on Asa as he tracks the wily prospector on foot. Desperately trying to intercept Brownie before he reaches Asa, both Matthews and Corey race towards the foothills, discovering that both Asa's and Brownie's respective cars are empty and have to pursue their suspects on foot through the treacherous and open terrain. As Asa reaches his mining claim, a picturesque spot of wide-open terrain, he uncovers a hidden tin box filled with bundles of banknotes. Deep in thought as to what to do next, Asa is unaware that Brownie is perched on high ground and is taking aim. Brownie's first shot barely misses Asa, who scrambles behind a large boulder, which barely provides cover. Brownie, undeterred, begins maneuvering for a strategic advantage, setting the stage for a perilous showdown in the rugged mountain terrain. Finally reaching the claim site, Matthews and Corey are well behind Asa and Brownie, but are soon drawn to the distant echoes of gunfire, and Asa knows the shots are closer to hitting their mark. With the tin box under his arm, Asa raises his other hand and cautiously edges out into the open, trying to surrender. However, the standoff takes a drastic turn when a rifle shot rings out, hitting the tin box instead of Asa and scattering the money. Asa, instead of seeking cover, begins gathering the scattered bills, but another shot hits him in the leg, spins him to the ground, injured but not defeated. Finding Asa wounded, Matthews and Corey take cover alongside Asa behind the boulder and know that they don't stand a chance against a skilled rifleman. With Corey providing cover fire, Matthews manages to get close enough to deliver a crucial shot that takes out Brownie. With the threat neutralized, Matthews and Corey attend to Asa's wounds, and the old prospector contemplates his future, mentioning staying in Folkson and registering a new claim. The End Excellent recap there, Norm. And there was a threat that the script doesn't even make explicit, but I was worried about the whole time. The Acme armored car. That's full of coyote money. The coyote hears about this. Asa is in serious, serious trouble. It's funny for a certain generation, like the name Acme, uh, it, it brings up uh, images of giant bombs, sticks of dynamite, black holes that teleport you to one side of the canyon to the other, and anvils. So <laughs> that black hole would have come in really handy for Asa here. I mean, just grab the money, right. Acme portable hole, you're out. You may know this better than I do because you know like where the shooting locations are, but I wasn't sure exactly where it was filmed. But at the beginning of the episode, it looks like that Asa was taking off from something that looked very similar to like where the Batmobile would take off from like Batman 1966, somewhere in that Bronson Canyon area. Yeah, I kept wondering if Batman was going to show up and save the day. Boy, that would sh certainly be a turn in the episode. But obviously, that was not going to happen for another decade. Still, it's kind of funny because, yeah, it is that place. And you're just sitting there waiting for the Batmobile to roar into the scene. When Asa was driving his flatbed, it reminded me a lot of the Beverly Hillbillies, but that didn't come out later for CBS until 1962. It's one of those time-at-a-place things that that vehicle was old when this was filmed. Mm -hmm. And you just do not see those anymore. And so it's kind of cool from that perspective. It was like half car and then half flatbed kind of bolted onto the car. 
yeah, it looked like a, a Frankenstein vehicle that he had had to cobble together himself you know, back in the day when people did that sort of thing and not just customizers who had a lot of money to spend on it. It was a thing that you did as a matter of course just to make sure you still had a vehicle. Right, right. Okay, so in breaking down the script, I actually texted you this just because I wasn't sure if I was seeing something that wasn't there, but I'm timestamping this from the recording of Prospector that people can see. So from 2 minutes 43 seconds to 4 minutes 22 seconds, nearly two full minutes, we see of what I found to be two scenes that weren't in the final script. In the script, Asa leaves Charlie's to pay off his loan. That was the end of it. And then it transitions to the Highway Patrol office where Matthew takes E.L. Dunn's call. So that's in the script. But the scene that transitions between Charlie and the Highway Patrol headquarters, in the show, there's a scene where Asa actually goes to the bank, meets with E.L. Dunn, just to pay off the bank loan. And then he gives Dunn three crisp $100 bills, and E.L. Dunn tries to financially advise him, saying, do you want me to put the rest of that giant stack of money that's in your pocket in the bank just for safekeeping? And and then Asa says, no, I want to hold on to my money for a while. I want it in my hands. And then after Asa leaves, Dunn calls the Highway Patrol headquarters, and that's where that scene picks up. So I'm wondering, how did this happen? I don't know. I'm looking through the script right now, and I noticed another really odd thing. This is one of the revised pages. This is one of the blue pages. Instead of page 8 or page 9, we have page 8 slash 9. I've never seen anything like that before in a script, and I find myself wondering at what late stage was it decided we needed to add to the story, because the bank manager almost exists entirely within these additions that are not in the script that we have. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I said this a few weeks back, you know, you can put final master script on the front page all you like. It's not the final master until the script editor and the producer have said, okay, this is what we're shooting. So evidently what we have in the archive is not the final shooting script. And as we've said before about Ziv Productions, I mean, now you're adding a set, albeit it's just a bank office, but you're actually adding dialogue, film that needs to be used, and you have to credit this particular actor you know, with his performance, you have to pay this actor. Again, there's only like a handful of lines, but still, I mean, these are all shooting production costs that, you know, escalate the final budget. I wonder if this is a case where they actually got it into the edit, came up really short and decided, you know, we're going to have to go back and write and shoot extra scenes for this because it only came out to like 18 minutes or something. Yeah. Kind of like the David Livingston effect. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. You could tell things are getting serious because Matthews calls the FBI for the first time in the history of the show. Yeah, you know what I liked about that is that now we're seeing kind of like this hierarchy of all the different uh, departments, you know, both state and federal, you know, in tandem. Because I've always like made a little bit of a criticism about why certain things were called into the highway patrol, like say in Human Bomb. You have obviously an inactive terrorist bomb threat plot that's happening and why wouldn't you call the fbi for that you know just to make sure that people are actually you know protected and safe and so that the chemical factory wouldn't go up in a giant fireball but with money i guess that was like the fbi's purview you know 
counterfeit money, stolen money, things of that nature. And I'm wondering if that Acme, quote unquote, armored car was in any way like associated with federal deposits, because that's what you bring in the, the FBI for, right? Yeah, it could be. And again, this kind of goes back to the innocence of the time that you've pointed out in previous installments of genealogy, where nowadays, if you had a terrorist threat, everybody is all in. Every agency at every level is on that. In 1955, 1956—just uh, call the Highway Patrol. No biggie. Right. Another thing I noticed in the script, in the scene where Maggie tips Matthews off to the presence of Brownie Osborne, the script can't decide if Sergeant Corey is Sergeant Corey or if he is Sergeant Dorsey. Then I went back and checked. Dorsey appears on the unrevised pages, and Corey shows up on the revised pages. It's another one of these things that makes you wish we had, like, every draft of this and every production note that went with it, because obviously some stuff happened with this episode. Okay, so going back to E.L. Dunn, E.L. Dunn's the bank manager, and I'm wondering, is there, like, a quote-unquote Walt Disney look that these types of executive people have, like, back in this time? Because from show to show to show, when you have an executive man, you know, from a bank teller or a doctor or a businessman, they all look like some type of derivative of like Walt Disney. And I'm wondering if that's a mark of success. Or did Walt Disney look like all of them? That is the big question. Yeah. That is the big question. Yell Dunn is uh, probably funding Epcot at this very moment. And I have Ooh. a very hard time not subconsciously calling him E.L. Fudge. I wonder if E.L. Fudge now looks like E.L. Dunn, who looks like Walt Disney. I would hit the back button and find that out, but I already deleted all those cookies. <laughs> you know, I did find it interesting that Dunn is like literally the only one outside of Ace's peer group, quote unquote peer group, as a bank executive was trying to actually help him. Like, hey, Ace, it's probably not a good idea if you're flashing your cash. It's probably a good idea if you actually put some of this in the bank so that, I don't know, if you get robbed by one of your quote-unquote friends, then, you know, no damage would be done. So he, he seemed like the right guy at the right time to do the right thing, even if that ended up him making that call to, to Matthews and say, hey, um, this guy's not a bad guy, but I think he's into some bad stuff. So Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Of course, now, you know, a bank manager, he definitely does have an ulterior motive for wanting you to keep your money in their bank, but... You make a good point, and I think we will talk more about this later, that it's kind of the old cliche of the moment you win the lottery, suddenly relatives you never knew you had show up with their hands out. That is true. Um, going into Act 2, there's another technical production note that I wanted to bring up. Now, I mentioned earlier with uh, E.L. Dunn, that was one of two scenes. Well, here's another extended scene that was added that's not in the script. So from... Timestamp 14 minutes, 39 seconds to 16 minutes, 20 seconds. There is a scene with Matthews questioning Jesse at Jesse's boarding house about Asa and Brownie Osborne. Now, this isn't in the script. There's a, a short line description of scenes 50 and 51 being omitted. But the transition scene from when the narrator brings in the opening of the second act to Jesse's house and then transitioning out of Jesse's house back to Maggie's house that isn't in there. That isn't in the script. Clearly some stuff happened after the script was handed in. And we've mentioned in the past that one of Gene's Highway Patrol scripts changes to it made after he had handed it in. 
honked him off to the point that he decided, I am going to become a producer. I'm going to start climbing that ladder so people stop messing with my words. I don't think this is that script, though. I think we really have... We've got one more to go, but in my mind, it has to have been Human Bomb that was the episode that was changed. Now, one thing you can't change about this episode, Jesse. Ugh. <laughs> she's going to gossip about everyone. She's going to be real nice to them if they hand her some crisp, clean bills. And then she's going to go back to gossiping about them. I, I, This is kind of a stock character. This is kind of a an archetype, a stereotype, however you want to put it. I greatly dislike this character. Yeah, she's almost kind of like the stereotypical, quote-unquote, small-town gossiper, but also a very real character, very real archetype, you know, much like Milo Hobson in Mental Patient was. You know, there are just these people in small-town society that do exactly what she does. And for better or worse, and probably not even like her own cognition, she's the one who actually puts Asa in danger yeah. because she's the one spilling the guts uh-huh. or spilling the beans on uh, to Brownie, you know, who's he's waiting for this moment to happen. And she finally kind of hands it to him on a silver platter. Yeah. Yeah. That, that thought occurred to me. I also thought that um, for a brief moment, because I know that age-wise this isn't uh, this isn't possible, but I thought that the actor who played Brownie looked a lot like Ray Wise. If uh, people know your Star Trek, Ray Wise was an actor. You know, he was in there uh, a couple episodes there. He was also one of like um, Clarence Boddicker's henchmen in RoboCop. A bunch of stuff. I mean, he has a body of work that is huge. Oh, yeah. But back then, he had that j- wonderful jet black hairstyle, uh, a la. You know, like a Frank Frazetta, you know, or a Jim Steranko type of look back in the 1950s. Yeah, I remember him from Twin Peaks, especially. Now, I know we had Hobson shooting at Clarence in the previous script in Mental Patient, but I think this is the first time in quite a long time that one of Gene's scripts has had the main protagonist of the show under fire. I think the last time we had this happen was Police Academy or maybe Court Escape back in the Mr. District Attorney days. I just find it kind of interesting that it's such a trope of this age of television that your main character has to be in danger. Gene really seems to be doing a good job of bucking that friend. Yeah, you know, and I appreciate like the level of detail that he put into the way that a rifle has greater range than a pistol. Because, you know, we're coming off of like the heels of World War II and we're, we're firmly in the Korean War now. So there are people in the audience that are paying attention to the, you know, these type of the firearms details. And one thing that drives me a little crazy about today's use of firearms, that you're actually having people shoot handguns at the same range to be able to take out a sniper um, that's not how you know. That's not how the the rounds are designed. They're designed for specific reasons, or else everyone would have just a handgun because they can hit anywhere at any time. They're like golf clubs. You don't use one golf club for the whole game, right? But also, what I like with with Matthews and Corey is like they were trying to use like the best possible technique with their short barreled weapons to try and, as Corey says, just drop around, you know, on top of Osborne and then we'll be good. He's like, yeah, sure. I'll get right on that. So I thought that was kind of neat, you know, and um, again, there's an audience back then that was savvy to those kind of details. Yeah. I love Matthew's line. I'm old enough to be scared. That makes me just as fast because he and Corey are comparing notes. 
about mm-hmm. who can mount that hillside faster and draw down on Brownie, put an end to all this. So Matthew says, I'm old enough to be scared. That makes me just as fast. Because Corey says, oh, I'm younger. Let me do it. Right. Which, for a, for a second, just watching it without the script the first time, I was thinking, oh, no, we're going to redshirt Corey. Because I already knew from last week's show that <laughs> Corey stopped showing up at some point. And I'm like, oh, no, not Corey. Dorsey. Yeah. Or, I just thought that was a funny line. I mean, I'm not sure how true that is. I, I'd be like, you know what? You go right ahead. But it, it's a good line. I mean, it's a very distinctive line. Very sharply drawn characters in this one. And, uh, you know, as much as I want to give uh, the rifle teching the tech scene a lot of credit for what it did, they did make a point for both of them to reload their guns before Matthews takes off to try and outflank Brownie so that Corey had a full round of six, you know, in his chambers. But he, like, fires off, like, 10 to 12 rounds simultaneously. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, you know, you can't, you, you win some, you lose some, I guess, sometimes in the transition between scenes. Okay, now at the end of this episode, we were talking last week about the PSAs, you know, the very sternly delivered Broderick Crawford PSAs. Is it my imagination, or was this the same G.I. Joe PSA that there was at the end of Mental Patient? Because I imagine they probably had a bunch of these in a rotation, and it's just a coincidence, since we're skipping just to Gene's episodes, it's just a coincidence that we landed on the same one twice. And this is the one that said, correct me if I'm wrong, leave your blood at the Red Cross and not on the highway? Not on the highway. The more you know. Okay, Norman, Prospector. Are the prospects good for finding a message here? I found it a little bit difficult to find anything really deep here, except maybe don't tell anybody you won the lottery or found some gold or inherited a bunch of money. You know, at the start, it's a really interesting effect. Maybe it's the Roddenberry effect, where you watch an episode for 24 out of the 26 minutes And then all of a sudden, somewhere along the line, like one line will just kind of crystallize the entire episode. I'm not saying that that's the case here. So the message, although not as hard to find as, say, within Human Bomb, not as, say, on the surface or easier to find than we saw in Reformed Criminal or Mental Patient. So my approach to all of this is to just kind of watch it for the first time and see if it's entertaining first and then second if that gene roddenberry moment happens and it does but it certainly wasn't as as easy as we had it in the previous episode when we did mental patient yeah it felt like gene was kind of reminding us of some very common sense universal things here and one of those that i'm glad that he put in here as irritating as i found the character is that gossip and rumor mongering can really shake up somebody's life. Not in a good way, either. Here, as we pointed out earlier, they almost get Asa killed. Mm -hmm. And I know in the last segment we were debating whether or not to let Jesse off the hook for that, but maybe just the message here is don't run your mouth about stuff that not everyone is supposed to know about. Don't be dropping stuff that was told to you in confidence. Now, No one was taken into anyone's confidence here because Asa also made the mistake of coming into money one way or the other, legal or not, 
and just seemed determined to tell the whole town about it. So I think in that respect, you know, we can let Jesse off the hook a bit, but she certainly didn't help. Yeah. The uh, the whole thing with like Charlie and Jesse at the diner at the beginning, you know, with Asa, I think that really was maybe a little too heavy handed when it came to setting the the tone of the story because you have you know this guy come in he you know again he's he, he's dressed in in rags you know but he has a handful of very fresh cash that he's just tossing around like I'm gonna pay off this debt I'm gonna pay off this debt I'm gonna buy you some cigars I'm gonna buy you a new dress. You know, and uh, I'm just going to keep this giant stack of cash in my in my pocket because I want to. You know, so he's he's kind of like very peacockish in a way where I think a lot of people that really know Asa uh, knew that this was contrary to how he used to be. Probably holding his hand out a lot, asking for a free meal, asking for free room and board, asking for this, asking for that, and he cops up to it. I'm not saying that he he's like ungrateful for the help that he's been given. It's just I think he's going about advertising that he's doing good by people because he finally can. There's that old saying, you know, where a fool and his money are soon parted, and I'm going to get into that in a little bit. I'm glad that he immediately goes about repaying those debts. He's repaying his bank loan. He's repaying Charlie. You know, he's making sure that his rent is covered and made whole. I'm not so sure about him hitting on his landlady. That's kind of skeezy there, Asa. It was, and it's strangely awkwardly cute, I think, in, in one sense, because I think that he's trying to right a lot of wrongs, and I think that he's trying to use money to do that. You know, I don't think that uh, she sees him as a bad guy. And there's a really funny exchange of dialogue when, you know, she says that whatever happens to you, Asa, I'm paraphrasing this, whatever happens to you, Asa, I'm going to miss having you around like I'm going to miss having an old dog around. And then he said to her something along the lines of, well, maybe I'll buy you a collar for this old dog. I mean, that's basically saying, I'll, you know, maybe put a ring on it, you know? Yeah, that's how I read that line, too. What do you make of Matthews telling Asa, you know, no one's going to bust your chops about spending a few hundred bucks of that money you found? I was really surprised by that, but I like it. So that tells us right there Matthews is in the Highway Patrol to serve steaming hot justice with a side order of more justice. And he's not working for the bank, Mm -hmm. basically. He's not there to hold Asa accountable for that. I wonder what a modern show would do with that because there has definitely been a shifting attitude on a societal level about what do you do if you find a gigantic amount of cash because these days it, almost the common sense thing is oh you find a bunch of cash that belongs to someone else it is not yours don't touch it don't take a dime of it and yes i understand we're, we're talking about two different flavors of doing the right thing here I just find it kind of interesting, especially in that day and age, that it was like, okay, you know, Asa spent maybe, what, 800, 900 bucks in the course of the episode. We're cool with that. Yeah, you know, you're weighing it in the in the scales of justice here with Matthews as one side, it's only a couple hundred bucks. On the other side, if it weren't for him, we wouldn't have solved the Acme, the great Acme bank robbery mystery or armored car mystery. So I think he's thinking, you know what? 
no harm, no foul, you know, give the guy a break. But then again, Milo Hobson was using the uh, no harm, no foul defense by not killing Clarence. So, you know, there's that. Um, Yes, we will never leave Milo Hobson off the hook ever uh, in any reference. After we do our 200th show, you know, we'll still bring up Milo Hobson. Uh, But maybe it's kind of like the naivete of the time or our perception of that naivete because we say this on occasion about highway patrol or even mr district attorney hmm i wonder if this was in the context of the time you know and i don't want to like offend anyone who grew up like watching this in real time you know in this you know golden age of of american television history but i do feel like these kind of moral lessons Uh, even though this wasn't the main moral lesson, but kind of like these small lessons along the way were intended for a specific audience, maybe like younger men who look at this and say, okay, you know what? I screwed up too, but it didn't really do anything or go anywhere. But at the same time, though, you have to own up to what Asa knew and what he felt he was entitled to. Asa knew that money wasn't his, but it was his uh, by claim or by right because whatever he found is on his property. And there's that, you know, there's kind of like the old prospector's law of um, salvageable rights, right? You know, if it's on my property, I own it. And the bank's like, yeah, sure, fine. Give us 300 bucks for that piece of dirt. Whatever you find on it, sure. And then all of a sudden you're George Lucas and you make a billion dollar empire because you, you know, secured the rights of your action figures. You don't know what's going to happen right, in the future. So there's this whole, like, uh, I think innocence involved with it. It's not like he funded terrorism. You know, he bought a couple dresses. You know, he paid off a couple of uh, diner debts and he paid off his bank loan. He didn't do anything bad with right. it. Right. He didn't do anything illegal with right. it. Right. He just knew that it wasn't his technically. Right. And he's really walking that fine line of the technicality here. I wanted to bring up a scene here, though. And this is like illustrates a little bit more to the point we're talking about. This also goes into the whole aspect of who your friends are. When you suddenly find this, this newfound wealth or this newfound wealth, you know, is kind of thrust upon you for whatever reason. Jesse says to Charlie before Asa walks into the diner, well, Asa McQueen, Mr. Deadbeat himself. And Charlie says, no more credit for him. I told him that last week. And then Asa comes in and flashes his cash and you know, pays off some of his debts to Charlie. You know, Jesse says, I always had good words for you, Asa. Just ask Charlie. There's a kind of cynicism today where we would, you know, judge Asa for being, you know, this kind of a deadbeat. But it seems like a little bit more innocent at the time, you know, with the way that he handled himself. And I'm wondering in that naivete of like the 1950s era, if society then isn't as predatory as society is now, allowing for stories like this to have the breathing room that they need in order to tell this kind of a story. Yeah, that scene stuck out to me as well. You know, kind of the beginning of me taking a great dislike to Jesse, not just because she's the town gossip. It's like, oh, you're that town gossip. Okay, see how this works. All right. But there's so much snark and irony today, whereas in the 50s, that was not the case. So I think you may be onto something there. Well, again, we were talking about one of the big problems with the way that Charlie and then Jesse and then sometimes even Maggie up to a point and then maybe even E.L. Dunn, they all have different responses to the way that Asa is 
proclaiming, albeit, you know, in a, in a kind of a coy way, like how he has been able to uh, turn his life around via a, a windfall of sorts. But then he says to Maggie that he feels entitled to this strike that he found on his claim. It wasn't a gold strike. It wasn't any kind of precious mineral strike that you would find, you know, basically in a plot of land, you know, in the dirt. But he feels like he's entitled to it because he found it on his land. And uh, without any further questioning, he's like, well, it's mine. So I'm going to do with it as I please. This brought up a really interesting thing about the word entitlement that we've seen, I think, in various degrees of use, in various tones, in Gene's Highway Patrol scripts, maybe even in the Mr. District Attorney scripts, but I'm not going that far back. So I wanted to make sure that we look at the definition of entitlement for the strict definition of it for all of us so we can continue this conversation. So in, on the Merriam-Webster online dictionary, entitlement is defined as 1A, the state or condition of being entitled, and 1B, a right to benefit specified especially by law or contract. Right, And then two is belief that one is deserving or entitled of certain privileges. And three is a government program providing benefits to members of a specified group, also fund supporting and distributed by such a program. So let's take a look at 1B and 2, because at the end of 1B, it says by law or contract, i.e. the contract that ASA has on his claim is a contracted claim. And of course, two, believing that one is deserving of uh, or entitled to certain privileges. So Asa says to Maggie, I found what I found on my claim, legal property. I spent 40 years of thirst and aches and blisters and practically begging for enough food to keep me going. I worked those hills hard and they finally paid me what they owe me. The thing is about Asa is that the hills don't owe him anything. Like, and I found a really interesting parallel with, say, Jay Dedrick. Remember, in Human Bomb, he believed that the company that let him go owed him something. It's either respect or severance or some kind of restitution. In mental patient, Milo Hobson's the same way. You know, he feels that he's entitled to treating the police a certain way and getting certain services because he is the taxpayer, right? So these three men, Asa, Jay, Milo, they have their own understanding of what entitlement means. But then I thought, you know what? This goes all the way back to the four pillars of masculinity script that we brought up we brought up in, I think it was episode two, when we covered Mr. District Attorney's wife killer, right? Because the husband in that episode also felt entitled and his entitlement led him to do murder or attempted murder. So right. do you see that thread happening in Gene's scripts? Definitely. And I, again, coming from Gene's line of work, because he wasn't always on the information desk, you know, you join the police force, you're going to start out as a beat cop. And so he spent some time pounding the pavement and, you know, working his way up the ranks to the desk job that he finally wound up with. And as I've mentioned in the past, one entitlement that law enforcement cannot claim is that they are always going to meet people at their best. Often their line of work involves meeting people at their mm. lowest or at their worst. And so I feel that this repeated theme of entitlement, whether it was conscious or not on Gene's part, he's definitely working something out of his system here. And maybe this is worth seeing that transition of his understanding of a belief system versus how it applies to humanity. 
as filtered through the the stories or the reports that he saw coming across the information desk at the uh, at the LAPD. Because when you really think about it, he's reading time and again the the dregs, you know, of of society and you know how they are affecting, you know, kind of like the the public at large. So that must not have been easy. But at the same time, that was probably very eye opening because instead of focusing on the worst that humanity had to offer, he's like, well, it can't be as bad as this all the time. It has to be better. And there are probably people out there that are fighting for that better existence, that better life, you know, the, the, the betterment of, of human society. So, but it's also interesting that he's still working through some of these biblical references in this episode, as he did with mental patient. As a matter of fact, Asa brings up a portion of the same passage that was used in in mental patient. It was the passage of Matthew chapter twenty five verses thirty five to forty. This is what Lucy was using um, to protect Clarence from Milo Hobson when he was shooting at him with the shotgun. Asa said to Maggie when she was um, being gifted this new dress of his. Asa McQueen don't forget who fed him when he was hungry, nursed him when he was sick. It's the same passage. So I'm wondering if there were any applicable biblical passages that related to Asa and his newfound wealth. And I found a few of them that I thought you might be interested in. So I went down this rabbit hole and I remembered some of these more well-known proverbs that relate to a fool and his money, quote unquote. Proverbs 19, verses 6 through 7. Many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. All a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but does not have them. I see that Charlie, Jesse, and Maggie, and E.L. Dunn are all kind of in the same equation of this particular passage. The next one, though, is a little bit easier. It's a little bit more transparent to, you know, to associate with this episode. Proverbs 19, 4. Wealth attracts friends as honey draws flies, but poor people are avoided like a plague. So again, just more of these uh, that are a little bit more applicable just in terms of how... uh, Now, Gene didn't use these in this episode. I just saw these as being very applicable to the episode. But this last one, though, this last one really got my attention. Proverbs 19, verses 6 through 7. Lots of people flock around a generous person. Everyone's a friend to the philanthropist. When you're down on your luck, even your family avoids you. Yes, even your best friends wish you'd get lost. If they see you coming, they look the other way, out of sight, out of mind. That's exactly the conversation that Charlie and uh, Jesse were having when she says, you know, he's a deadbeat. And Charlie's like, yep, no more, ter- you know, no more credit for him until he comes in with shiny new dollar bills and he's everyone's friend again. So there's a lesson to be learned here. Norm, I'm really hard pressed to find deep message, you know, something for the ages that isn't common sense. And as we've said before, sometimes there isn't one. You can probably squeeze some common sense warnings about not announcing to the world that you've got money, not gossiping, and some other common sense things from this story. But other than that, 
It's just a rollicking, good little adventure with some very distinctive characters. It's a serviceable but you know maybe unremarkable script, but I think the strides here are in Gene's characterization. The plot holds together well, and it's miles ahead of Human Bomb, which had super convenient contrivances like, oh hey, here's a hitchhiking kid cutting school who just happens to remind the nominal villain of the piece of himself at a younger age. Nothing is really that convenient here. It all hangs together as a plot. Prospector may be nothing extraordinary in the messaging department, but it is full of memorable characters because they are identified very early on before the plot starts moving. Here's the town gossip. Here's the dangerous loner. The plot flows naturally from their actions and decisions without it feeling like they're being moved around on the chessboard. This is an important development from a writing standpoint, because after all, if Gene's characters don't engage you in the story, you're not going to stick around for a message. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask you something about the almost four minutes of additional scenes that were filmed and then put into the story that weren't in the script. Now, when we did Mr. District Attorney, all we had to go off of were the scripts. So we don't know exactly which of those stories, when they were produced, how closely they were to resembling the actual final draft script. Because from my understanding, we're working with final script drafts that would be locked, sealed, and you know, delivered to production you know, to break it down for the actors, the sets, etc. But then you had these two scenes. And I'm wondering, after reading the script and then seeing these scenes produced, did these two scenes add anything more to the story from a, a character perspective, or were they just superfluous just to pad the story? They may have been added as padding, but I think by bringing in the bank manager for exposition purposes to establish, okay, there was an armed car robbery, we are missing these bills, the serial numbers on these bills that were tendered locally match some of the serial numbers from the stolen money. He has some exposition duty to perform there, but it also comes across completely naturally, because you would expect a bank manager... To know that. Yeah. That information could have come by the way of the FBI over a phone call that we're only hearing half of. Once again, you know, Matthew says a line and then there's silence where you once again imagine Charlie Brown's teachers going, (laughs) but because the bank manager is a presence locally and Matthews can go talk to him, that seems to flow much more naturally. And so I think not only are we adding exposition, but we are adding natural flow to the story. Matthews goes from here to here to get more information. He goes to the bank, then he goes to see Ace's landlady, and then he goes to see Brownie's landlady, who is the miserable town gossip. And so he's kind of on this quest to piece together everything from the story, and that last piece is provided that tells him, okay, Asa is in serious danger, we need to find him. And so what that removes from the equation is coincidence. You know, it seems like a natural progression of his investigation that he goes to these characters, gradually pieces together this information, and then, oh no, we've got to go save Asa. And then we get our exciting, action-packed shootout at the end. But there's no coincidence. There's nothing that, oh boy, that was really convenient that that happened. It seems like the stuff that would come up in a normal investigation. 
But what do you think that Jesse's seen? I mean, I, I, I get it with, with the Yale Dunn, the bank manager, because it gives just a little bit more kind of like an authority figure as into the proceedings of, you know, he he has known Asa. He's probably floated Asa some favors, you know, and, and, and given him some leeway here and there when it comes to his loan. With Jesse, though, I mean, we got like as much of the town gossip as I think we needed from her when she was on the phone with Elsie. And then when uh, Brownie Osborne was kind of being irritated to the point of like yelling at her saying like, hey, enough is enough. You know, can a, can a man in your boarding house actually get some peace and quiet around here? And then Matthews in uh, right transitioning into the second act goes over to the boarding house to see where Osborne is. And then she sits him down and just wants to kind of, I don't know, have company with him, <laughs> you know, because like the, the, the conversation doesn't really go anywhere. If you're the town gossip, what are you getting out of life if you don't have someone to gossip to? That's a fair point. I think that's what she was yeah. getting out of it. Yeah, but there was like a just a facts man type of attitude that I think uh, Matthews or maybe it was Broderick Crawford or both, you know, that were they were getting a little keyed up. It was like, look, I just need to know what I need to know. And she's like, but the sing songiness and like um, he's trying to make his way out the door and she's always kind of like tugging at his uh, not tugging physically, but kind of like tugging metaphorically, like at his attention to reel him back in. I don't know. It just seems to me that there may have been better uses of their time maybe getting more out of Maggie. Cause I don't think we got enough out of Maggie as we did out of Jesse. And Maggie was the far more important character. Or it could be that Jesse was just the more talkative character and you kind of think of it from her perspective. You know, she's the town gossip, man, who is going to have more dirt on everyone than the highway patrol? She's, oh, that's fair. she's probably yeah. trying to get him to stay and, you know, loosen his lips a bit to see what tumbles out. That she can then go and tell the whole town about. I got it from the cops. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. Matthew has told me. And that's not a lie because this is the law and they wouldn't lie to me. Right. So, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. I'm just trying to like trying to figure out again why they added it, the justification of the expense of adding it. And then what does it do for the, for the, you know, the story? Because we have, uh, John and I have made mention on, uh, particular mission log episode where david livingston had to pad an entire episode by quite a bit and you could feel it and that's where i was feeling it here you can tell that it just added a little bit of extra something but not necessarily consequential but for me though like this episode isn't revolutionary in say the way that reformed criminal was in mental patient especially since they were separated by human bomb because that maybe gave mental patient even more impact, you know, looking at them consecutively because reformed criminal was really strong. The human bomb as a gene script wasn't, and then mental patient really was. So I think that seeing the variety of these scripts, just in terms of kind of like clocking and illustrating Gene's growth as a writer is really interesting. But I think that um, and you've mentioned this a couple of times that we have to come to this understanding that at this stage of his career, he's still just a writer, quote unquote, right? He's subject to any and all whims of the script coordinator and the production manager and Frederick Ziv, right? So I mean, when he becomes his own executive producer, that will all change. But maybe that's why we're seeing this like strange inconsistency with Gene scripts, very high highs and very low lows, you know, and, and rarely something like very even keel, which I think that this is. It's a good Gene script. It's trending towards what we know of Gene. It's just not as impactful as, say, Mental Patient 
but not of not all of them are going to be, you know, because he doesn't have the control, you know, over over the destiny of the final production. But um, all that being said, I did see a moral meaning or message that I think is about as universal as as one can be. And I think I mentioned this before in discussion, a fool and his money are soon parted. This specific idiom is so entrenched in the lexicon of the English language, it can actually be found in the Merriam-Webster online dictionary. As you can tell out there, I spent a lot of time looking at the Merriam-Webster online dictionary for references. This means that a foolish person spends money too quickly on unimportant things. Now, that's not really fair. And I think in Ace's case, where he's trying to pay off debts and trying to make good on the graces and, and the charity of others that, that he feels that he owes. You know, but as soon as I saw Asa start flashing his cash, that's kind of like the action of somebody like this, a fool in his money, because everyone looks at him differently for a handout or another, uh, or for a favor or another. He has friends now he never knew he had, right? And uh, there are people that are literally gunning for him, <laughs> you know, in terms of uh, uh, Brownie Osborne's case. So, and he not, he's not stupid, right? He knows that the money that he found on his property is illegal, but he justifies it all the same. Which brings me to basically another tropish classic message. If it's too good to be true, it usually is. This is where... It's not a revolutionary message or messages, but compared to Human Bomb, it is a little bit more significant for an episode that you can take a moral or a, me- or a message away from. So Asa says to Matthews, with a bullet in his leg, thinking of where he's going to go after his financial ruin and after surviving that altercation with, with Brownie, Asa says, seek and thou shalt find. I've done my seeking, mister. Where's my find? And Matthew says, I guess it depends on what a man's looking for. And that's that moment. That's that Gene Roddenberry moment where you start, you go down the road of contemplation of your actions. But earlier on, I linked the male characters in some of these scripts to this entitlement issue. Now I'm looking at all the criminals that have been at the center of these stories. And all of them have one major theme that ties them all together. They've all been marginalized by society in such a way where their criminal action or intent is just a byproduct of that marginalization. You know, when we really take a look at the downtrodden in a lot of these gene scripts, it's not because they're bad people. It's because society has discarded them in some way where they don't really have much of a choice. And made that something that, you know, Gene saw you know, uh, during the course of seeing these reports come through his LAPD information desk. But maybe that's something that we also see mature more later on in Gene's work. And it could be that Gene is either already very well aware of, you know, considering the job that he has been holding up to now, systemic problems that need to be addressed in society. Mission Log Genealogy is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Special thanks to the Roddenberry Repertory Players. Our cast this week featured Paul Harveth as Asa McQueen and Michelle Harveth as Maggie Hammond. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. If you have any material that might be of interest to us that isn't already in the Roddenberry Archive, Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. On the next genealogy, 
oil lease. Special thanks to consulting producers Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, Tom Kozak, Julie Miller, Mike Richards, Mike Shabel, Paul Shadwell, and David Takechi. We'll be back next week with more of your favorite programs. This concludes our broadcast day. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.